Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. As you can tell if you look up front, we're going to celebrate the Lord's table today. Our practice has been over the last year or so to, instead of just do this as a matter of routine, I've scheduled them less frequently than we had before because I want to take an entire service and dedicate it to it because we were taking it for granted. If you weren't, I was. Uh, But I suspect that many of us were just kind of taking it for granted, something that we were just going through to do as a matter of routine or tacking on at the end of the service. And we're going to read some scriptures today. We've read them before that, that, that... that bring us back to an awareness that this is the Lord's table. It's not Faith Christian Center's table. It's not your table. It's not my table. It's not the table of some other church or denomination. This is the Lord's table, and therefore we need to turn to his word and find out what he means for his table and what he intends for his table and what he wants to do in, in this experience that we're going to go through together. And so the, the, the beginning of this understanding we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where Paul is correcting a church that although they were very spiritual and the gifts of the Spirit flowed in tremendous in abundance there, yet of, of all his churches, they were the least mature. They were carnal, he called them in the beginning of the, of the, of the letter. He says, you are carnal, which means you're acting like just mere men. You, you come here and although the, the prophecy is flowing and tongues are flowing and miracles are taking place, you're acting just like the world when you get out of here. In fact, what we're going to see is they were acting just like the world in church. And that's what we do when we fight and squabble with one another, even in church. We're acting just like the world does, and then the world can't see a difference between the body of Christ and the world, and no wonder that we don't have much credibility with them. And so Paul is addressing a particular issue here, and we're going to pick up in, in verse uh, 20. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it's not, that it's not to eat the Lord's table. What they were doing is they were, they were coming with their own meals. It was like a potluck supper to them. And they were sitting in factions. So you'd have this one group would sit over there and they'd share their food with one another. Another group sat over here and shared their food with some other. And then there were others that didn't have any food at all. And those groups that were collected together didn't care about the groups that didn't have any food. And then there were some, don't tell anybody, there were some drunk in church and not on the spirit or the right spirit. And so they came in and they were drinking the wine that they shared and they were getting drunk on it. They saw this as a party. They saw this as a potluck supper of coming together. And I'm sure they were enjoying one another's fellowship within their own groups. But they lost sight if they ever had a sight of what the purpose of this was. And so the Apostle Paul is calling them back to an awareness of it or making them aware of it maybe for the first time. Therefore, when you come together in one place, in one place, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of the others. And one's hungry and another's drunk. What? Don't you have houses to eat and drink in? In other words, this is not like what you do at home. This is not like what you do, you know, at friendlies or someplace where you go out to eat. This is different. Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. And now he's going to go to what the Lord showed him the communion table was about. 
For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, this was at the Last Supper, when he had given thanks, he broke and he and broke it. He said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, or unworthily, some translation said, will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And that's what we're doing today. We're examining ourselves. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning reason. Many, many of you are sick, and many sleep. That means they died. If we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. And if we are judged, we're chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brother, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. For if anyone's hungry, let him eat at home. So in other words, we're not doing this to sustain our body. Lest you come together for judgment, and the rest I will set in order to you when I come. Those are serious statements. Those are serious statements about something that we just take so lightly. And, throw, and he's saying, just because they had the wrong attitude among it, they were guilty of the body and blood of the Lord Jesus. And as a result of that, many of them were weak, sick, and some had died. I don't hear a lot of messages on this, but it's in there. So we're going to take a look this morning. We have before looked at this from a little different point of view. What is the significance? Because the key here, he says, is not rightly discerning the Lord's body. And because they did not rightly understand what that represented, they were, they were in God's eyes guilty of, mis, of, of profaning it. And as a result, they opened the door to sickness and disease. And in some cases, death. And to me, the word that stands out is, is many of you, many among you, are weak and sick. And a number have already died. So what is this all about? What does this communion table represent? Some of you have come out of traditions or teachings that what happens at the communion table or at the communion altar is literally, we're going to look at scriptures that can be seen as the basis of that. But you were taught and trained to believe that literally the bread turned into his body. That literally the bread turned into his body. But that's not what he says. He says it represents his body. It's interesting because in those traditions, they give you the bread that turns into his body, but they don't give you the wine that turned into his blood. But that's not what the Bible is teaching here. He's teaching something more than that. He's teaching something of a greater significance than that. So let's look at what this is about. Let's look at what's really underlying this. Let's go over for one to one chapter. Let's go back over to chapter 10 because it's all part of the same discussion. Verse 14. Therefore, now remember, he's writing to a church at Corinth. Corinth is at the very southern end, the southern part of Greece. 
And we've talked about Corinth before when we talked about uh, that the Greeks trusted and relied in philosophy and understanding, and they trusted in their minds. This is the same church. It's the same letter, actually. And, and Paul, this is, these are people that, that are saved, but they were pagans before they were saved. They had no, they, they, they worshipped the goddess Diana. And there was a huge temple there. And people would come from all over the pagan world to worship at the temple of Diana, and they would sacrifice animals to her, to the god of Diana. Just as in the real worship in the Old Testament, the people would come and they would offer animals that would be sacrificed to the true God and the true living God. See, Satan is a counterfeiter. And what is a counterfeit? A counterfeit is a fake version of something that's real. You'll never run across a fake $3 bill. Because any $3 bill is fake because there is no such thing as a real $3 bill. But the counterfeiters, from what I understand, tend to counterfeit the most common bills, like the 20s, because that's the one they can get the most money for, but it's also the most common bill that's used in exchange. So they take something that's real and they pervert it into something to get something false out of it. And that's what a counterfeit is. And so these were counterfeit worship. In fact, any worship that's not of the true and living God is a counterfeit worship. Because how can you give honor to something that doesn't exist? How can you give honor to a goddess Diana who doesn't live? She's not alive. How can people worship idols that God says in the book of Isaiah, have eyes but they can't see, have ears but they can't hear, have a mouth but they can't speak, and they have hands and arms but they can't reach out and hand made them. And so in this passage, he's talking about worship. And we spent a year or so on worship, and communion is a form of worship. And he's talking here to a people that were used to going to the temple, sacrificing the animals, and then either drinking their blood or eating the, eating the, the meat that came out of that. And that's what Paul's talking about. He's talking about not the outward practice, but the underlying principle and attitude that was behind it. First Corinthians 10, verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, so he's talking to Christians, flee from idolatry. I speak to you as wise men. Judge for yourself what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, that's the communion cup, is, not, is that not the communion of the blood of Christ? And the bread which we break, is not that the communion of the body of Christ. Let's stop there a second because I want to explain to you what he's saying there. He's saying, isn't this cup of blessing that we share together, and isn't this bread which we share together, he doesn't say, doesn't this turn into the body of Christ? He said, isn't it a communion with the body of Christ? Now the word, we've taken that word and we call this communion. The word in Greek is the word koinonia. It's a very important word, and it's kind of a broad word. But in essence, what it means is having, sharing something in common with. And, and we'll, another word that we use, kind of a, a religious word that we Christians use, is fellowship. 
So we're going to go out together after church and fellowship together. Or come over to my house and let's fellowship together. What does that mean? It means we're going to hang out together. We're going to enjoy one another's company. We'll most likely eat food together, but it's not the eating of the food. That's something we're sharing in common with each other. And what causes those times of fellowship, what causes those times of communing together, what causes those to be meaningful is we're coming together to enjoy what we already have in common. You don't fellowship with strangers. You may get to know them and introduce yourself to them so that you can have communion and fellowship with them. But what fellowshipping is enjoying something that you share in common. The old definition I heard years ago, which is a real shorthand one, is what fellowship is two fellows in the same ship. (laughs) So it's sharing something together. And as you share together, it begins to develop a closeness and an intimacy. Now, I don't know if you've ever had this experience. Fortunately, I have not. But years ago, this was probably back in the 60s, and I know it's happened since then, but this is the one that that comes to my mind today. In the Northeast, there was a day sometime, I think it was in the fall, and it was a work day, somewhere around 5 o'clock or 4.30, and those of you that are old enough to remember this will remember it if you lived in this area. There was a breakdown in the Northeast grid at the Niagara Power Company, and literally the entire Northeast lost power right at a time when people in cities like New York were getting on the elevator to go home. Now, I've worked in large office buildings where you don't know the other people in your building on the other floors. And you get on your floor, and of course, in the Northeast, we get in like this. I'm not going to touch you. You don't touch me. I don't look at you. You don't look at me. And I can't wait to get off because there's too many people in here and I'm not comfortable. And they got on that elevator not knowing anybody else. And I've forgotten how long it was, six hours, something like that. And after six hours, you don't stand like this for six hours. Now what happens is they have a common cause together. And I guarantee you by the time they got out of that elevator they had begun to develop a relationship with each other. Why? Because they went through something together. Why is it that soldiers, sailors, and I, I, I can assume, it, assume it's true with soldiers, but I know from experience my father, my, my father, my uncle was, a, was a, uh, an officer on a Navy ship in World War II. We have, Fred here was on a ship in World War II. And all I know is my uncle, until the day he died, every year he was in contact with the remaining people on that ship. And this was 50 years, 55 years later. Why? Why would he maintain a relationship with them? Because they went through something intense together. They had something in common that even 50 years later, when they would come together, and you see those pictures of, of the, the landings in Normandy and, 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 and when, when they, they bring the people back together again that serve together. There's still a camaraderie. There's still something that years and years later they have in common. Why? They went through something together. There's something they shared together. And when they shared it together, it bound them together. Why? Because they needed each other to live. In order to survive, when you have a common enemy coming against you, 
They didn't care where they came from, what they were like. Because when there's a common enemy coming against you, you bind yourselves together to fight against that enemy. And there's a bond there that's never lost completely. That's what communion is. It's a being joined together with somebody else. And fellowship and communion is an experiencing and an enjoying of that which you have in common with one another. And here the Apostle Paul is talking about it, not in terms of them just with one another, but the foundation of all of that is what they have in common with Christ. Because look what he says. He says this, verse 16, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion or the sharing together of the blood of Christ? And the bread we break, is it not the communion or the shedding, to, or the, or the, the communion of the body of Christ? For though we are, for though we're many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? In other words, when they when the priest performed the sacrifice out on the brazen altar, when they would put the animals in the carcasses in there, they would slit the throat, they would drain the blood out because they couldn't eat the blood because the blood represented their life. They weren't to take in them, they were not to take in themselves the life of animals because God made man superior to the animals in spite of what our society is trying to tell us today. But they would eat, the priests would then eat of the meat, some of the meat they would eat of. And what the apostle is saying is, when they use that meat to worship God as an offering to God, and then they partook of it, they were partaking of that altar. They were partaking of or joining in this worship of their God. They were, in a sense, this was just a type of it. It was a type of being joined together with God, a connection with Him. The altar has always represented a place where God and His people could come together and connect together, commune together. And that's what the apostle is talking about. He says, don't you understand that in the Old Testament, when they ate of the animal that was used for the sacrifice, they were partaking of what was being given or sacrificed to God, and therefore they were in communion with God to a very limited extent. Verse 19. Then what am I saying then? Is an idol anything? Or what is offered to idols is anything? He's saying, this is so important. He said, look, it's not, it's not who you're offering it to. In other words, because he's saying, idols aren't real. They have no life. So you can't literally be giving yourself to that idol. Ah, but watch out. Watch out. Rather, that the things with the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons, not to God. Now, we don't talk a lot about demons here, but they're real. Jesus talked to them. And there have been excesses of that, excesses of that in prior days. But, you know, we can go to the other extreme and just sort of think that everything that happens just happens... You know, it happens or, you know, but there's a demonic world out there. Jesus 
Paul said. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. Rulers in heavenly places. So there are spiritual angels out there and there are demonic spirits out there. And Paul is saying here, he's saying, that, you know, don't, the fact that there was an idol that said it was, her name was Diana, that's just a piece of whatever the material was that idol was made out of. But behind that practice, there were demonic forces desiring to be worshipped or communed with. And what he's going to say is when, the peg, when you were still pagans and you offered that sacrifice to Diana and then you ingested that meat within you, you are communing with those demons. It's a spiritual communion. communion. Because by taking in your body, you are receiving in yourself. There's nothing demonic in that slab of meat in the hamburger. Aren't you glad? There may be calories and fat in there, but there's not demonic. What made this communing with demons is the purpose for which it was offered. And so by, par- par- by partaking of that meat that was intended to use to worship demons, you are com- participating in that worship of demons. And he said, that's what you used to do when you were pagans. All right, this is, this is going to be good, so just follow me through. Rather, the thing was the Gentile sacrifice. They sacrificed to demons and not to God. I don't want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and of the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Or do we not provoke the Lord to jealousy Are we stronger than He? So apparently, there's something spiritual going on when we partake of something that is intended to have a spiritual purpose. And He's using it in the negative here as an example. He said, you used to go to the temple, and at the temple they would take goats and bulls and whatever it is, and they would cut them, they would sacrifice them to this idol, and then you would eat that afterwards. You would take that into your body. And because by taking that into your body, you were, you were spiritually participating and giving yourself over to that demon. Now, just so you don't get nervous, what he goes on and talks about is, but when you're home... You don't need to worry about whether that meat came from a demonic service or not because when you give thanks for it, you sanctify it. That's the purpose of our grace. You don't need to trace back and find out whether that hamburger was somehow offered to some pagan service somewhere out in the West. So the verses after this, because you look, it talks about you don't need to know where they're coming from, but if your brother is concerned about it, then don't eat it. And I said, so what's the deal? Well, here he's talking about what happened in the temple as an act of worship. When you're eating your hamburger or your whatever it is, your fish, uh, that's not an act of worship. That's just sustaining your body. So that's the difference here. All right. Let's go to John chapter 6.
long chapter. I'm going to read down through part of this, and then we'll go back through it. We'll part, pick up in verse 30. Now, what's happened as a background here is Jesus has now come to the other side of, of the lake, the Sea of Galilee. On the other side is where he fed the 5,000 from a little boy's lunch, 5,000 men plus all the women and children. And what happens is he sends the disciples over to the other side of the lake. He goes up to pray, and he comes down and goes to the other side. And if you read it in the other Gospels, he walked out on the water. Day comes, and the people look around, and they know the disciples left by the boat. They don't know how he got over there. But now they go and follow him around to get to the other side, to follow where he's gone. And so they're now coming up to him, and he's just had a discussion with them. He says, you bread and food. In other words, you're seeking me because of what you've gotten out of it, the natural good stuff the blessings of this life that you've gotten out of me. And there are Christians today that are seeking him for the same reason. And he challenges them that they need to seek him for the right reason. And so there are already conversations already about food, about what the food is that they've gotten from him. All right. Verse 30. Therefore they said to him, Well, what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, Moses didn't give you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. Now remember when we studied... John chapter 4 in worship, and we study Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well, and she's thinking about natural water, and he's trying to lift her eyes up to what he really wants to give her, which is spiritual water, spiritual life that never, that will always refresh her and strengthen her. This is a similar kind of discussion. They got their eyes on that piece of bread that they want, and that, that, you know, that donut in the case. And Jesus is trying to lift their eyes to something bigger, trying to lift their eyes to him and why he came. He says, Moses didn't give you that bread. My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, well, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you've seen me and yet you don't believe me. All that the Father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me I will not by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of my Father who sent me, that all he has given me I shall lose nothing, but shall raise them up on the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And the Jews then complained about him because he said that he was the bread which came down out of heaven. And they said, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said to them, don't murmur among yourself. No one can can come to me unless my father who is sent draws him, and I will raise him up in the last day. 
It is written in the prophets that, all, that, that they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. Verse 48, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they're dead. Why? Because that life, bread, could not... It gave them physical life, but it couldn't give them eternal life. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever, and the bread that I shall give him is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world." The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, you eat the flesh of the, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him as the living Father sent me. So I live because of the Father. So he, he who feeds on me will live because of me. Wow. What happens after that is this huge crowd that's been following him gets up and quickly leaves. Jesus' church with one sermon went from thousands down to twelve. And the twelve were his staff. And he turns to them and says, are you going to leave also? And Peter as much as says, well, we've been praying about it. (laughs) But we don't know where else, because no one else has the word of life. It's a powerful set of scriptures in there. The, The people in the congregation misunderstood. And many others have misunderstood it. Jesus is not talking about his physical body being turned into, into, into something. The physical body he's talking about is the body he's going to offer up for them. And the physical blood he's talking about is the blood he's going to spill for them. And when he says, my body, my flesh is food indeed, what he means by that, it's true flesh. It's true food. Now, in the early days of the church, they were called cannibals. Because when they would celebrate the Lord's table together, they would talk about eating His body and drinking His blood and because the people thought in natural terms, which is what some of our traditions have done before. They've got to turn Him into something natural that you can touch. That's not what it's about at all. They thought in natural terms. All they could think of is they were cannibals. They were eating His body and they were drinking His blood. And what does all that mean? Because they didn't understand the spiritual message that He was preaching to them. Because He says, My flesh is food indeed. In other words, it's real food. And what is food? Food is what sustains you. Food is what gives you life to your body. And my blood is drink. It's indeed, it's real drink. It's what gives you nourishment and strength. And what Jesus is saying here, unless you... And what, let's put it this way. When you had breakfast this morning, if you had it, or dinner last night, what did you do with that? 
you put it in your mouth, you chewed it up, and you swallowed it. Right? This is, this is no trick here, okay? And, and in the process of digestion, part of that hamburger you had last night, I don't know why I have hamburgers in the brain, or fish or something healthy that you had last night, or, or, or the eggs you had this morning or the cereal you had this morning, at some point, the nutritional part of that gives you energy, and then what's left over of that becomes part of you. Right? Now, you're going to have to take this by faith. But part of the meals you had last week are still in you. They may be around here or they may be other places. But they're now part of you and you can't go in your body and find out where last week's ham sandwich is. Why? Because it's no longer a separate piece of food. It's now part of you. And you're part of that ham sandwich. You've been joined together because you ingested it or received it in yourself. And this is why the eating of those animals sacrificed to idols was worship because it was our participation in, it was a communion with, it was our taking in themselves of something that had a spirit behind it of worshiping demons. And Jesus is saying, in order to have the eternal life that my Father has sent me to bring, you have to enter into something with me other than just hanging out around me. You have to enter into a relationship with me where literally you take me into you and I am taken into you. Where we become one. All the scriptures that talk about what God's done for us in Christ, in some way, add in the words, in Him, in Christ, through Him. It's never on their own. Ephesians chapter 1 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus, just as He chose us in Him to be holy and without blame before Him. In love, he predestined us. So he chose you and me to be holy and without blame before him because we're in Christ. Second Corinthians 5, 17. In Christ, he's a new creature. All things have passed away and all things have become new. Why? Because we're in Christ. goes on and says in verse 21, Because he who knew no sin, that's Christ, became sin, so that we, who plenty knew sin, we might become the righteousness of God. That's an incredible statement. He didn't say, so that you might be cleaned up and made acceptable to God. He didn't say that so God could wash away your sins and make you so that God could receive you into heaven. That'd be wonderful. No, no, no. It says that we might be made, not earn, not accomplish, not achieve, but might be made. If 
Ephesians 2, 4 says, for you, for, two, eight, six, I think it's 6, says, for you are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. That we might become, that we might be made the righteousness of God. As righteous as God is. I want that to sink in. Because we have this subtle image that, that God's given us His Spirit and His Word so that we, we can have this self-improvement program. And so that, you know, when you run out, you can go to Lowe's or Home Depot or wherever, and you can get more supplies, except we don't go there. We go to the Word. We go to God for more grace. We turn to the Holy Spirit. I'm not doing well. I'm struggling today, Lord. You know, strengthen me by your grace so that I can do better. I can, I, can, I can do better. Because at the goal at the end of the day is, Lord, you and I did pretty well with me today. Thanks for helping me out. And underneath that, is a very subtle attitude that I, I, I hope I can get to the point where I don't need as much of His grace and help. So that I can get to the point, ultimately, if I'm a complete Christian, where I don't need Him at all, because I've now got this going. We sang part of one of the songs we sang this morning, had part of Amazing Grace in there. And there was a time when the church changed the word, not all the churches, but some of the churches. He said, you know, uh, I once was lost, but now, you know, uh, say the wretch like me. And then people were discovering this righteousness that, that uh, or discovering again the righteousness of the gospel that we've been made, the righteousness of God. They would change that word into something else. No, I was a wretch. And you were a wretch. And apart from Christ, I'm still a wretch. There is no goodness in me when it comes to comparing to God of my own. There isn't today. There wasn't 30 years ago when I got saved. And there won't be 30 years from now if I'm still walking on this earth. There wasn't in Jesus. Don't throw anything yet. Because Jesus said, when somebody came to him and says, good master, he says, no, no, no. There's only one good. And that's my father. My goodness comes from Him. We've been made, not earned, not accomplished. We've just plain been, because He took the sin, we've been made the righteousness of God. God's righteousness. Oh. There's two more words in the verse. In Him. God didn't just make you righteous and say, go for it. No. God didn't change you at all or me other than to change the nature and bring us into union with Christ the righteousness we have is His righteousness which He earned and because we've been joined to Christ we now share jointly with Him whatever He is whoever He is 
Whatever he can do, we now share that with him because we've been engrafted in him. We've been fused in him. And the way God did this is when you called on Christ, whether it was down here in your living room, I had no clue what I was doing. All I said is, Jesus, I don't even know if you're real. But if you're real, I'm asking you to come into my life. I gave him that little opening. He flooded in with all of his love and his grace. And in that night, that time, in that moment's time, he took my old nature out, the Bible says, and he put his own nature in there. He put his own spirit in there. And it's by that spirit I've been joined to him, spirit to spirit. My physical body is is joined to him only because his spirit lives in me. Otherwise, I couldn't take it places he doesn't want it to go. The Bible says your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. But if my body was physically joined to him, then it couldn't go anywhere he didn't want to go. It's my spirit that's joined to him. And he wants my body to be a vehicle through which he can work and worship. So that as I surrender to him, as Paul says in, first, in, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, my brethren, I urge you by the mercies of God that you present your body as a living sacrifice. Everything the Bible says you have by being a child of God is because you've been joined him. It says in Ephesians chapter 2 that we've been seated with him in heavenly places. I used to think it was this way. I thought, here's God's throne over here. And of course, next to him is Jesus. He's at the right hand of the Father. And probably next to him was the Apostle John, and then there's Peter, and then there's Paul, and then there's, you know, all all the saints and the martyrs are down there. And somewhere, somewhere, Somewhere way over by the horizon was John. This John. I mean, it was kind of, we're seated with him, kind of like, you know, you go to a party and you go, who else was there? Well, we were there with, with so-and-so. We were, there, we were in the same area with him. That's not what it's talking about. Because there's two other, seated with him in heavenly places. It's because I am... The Father's here, and because I'm in Christ, I'm here next to the Father. Because I'm in Christ. John chapter 17. Do you believe that Jesus got his prayers answered? I do too. Verse 20. He's been praying for the disciples, the 11 disciples. Now he turns to us. I don't pray for these alone. He's talking to his Father. But also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and me. That they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they may also be in us that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them, 
and you in me, just as your ham sandwich was in you, and you were in your ham sandwich. That the world may know that you have sent me and, and have loved them as you love me. Father, I desire that those whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me. Before you love me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I've known you, and those who have known you have sent me. You've, to those who've known me, you sent me. And I declare to them your name and will declare it, that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. The reason we struggle so often, the reason we struggle so often with the issues of life struggle so often in our prayer life, struggle so often with everything in life. It's because our image is that Christ saved us, sent us out into life, and hopefully we're going to get through it and be there at the end to give us a final report or accounting. Some of us know better than that. We know he's available as a resource to help us, that we go to him and ask him for help and for strength and all of those things, and that's true. But we're missing it. We're looking at it this way. It's God the Father seated on his throne. Jesus seated at his right hand. And there's you and me out doing what we're supposed to do. And when we get in trouble, when we run out of strength, we run back to him and we ask him for strength and help so that we can go back out and finish doing whatever it is we need, healing, whatever. We go back out and we go back out and do it. And even out here, we can call on him for wisdom. But we see ourselves as separate from him. And as a result, we always have this sense that we don't quite measure up. So we come to the end of our day and say, Lord, I tried hard, but I fell short again. I didn't, I didn't measure up to what you're like. I didn't measure up to what you expect. I didn't measure up. And there's this frustration of wanting to do better and trying to do better, wanting to overcome. There's such a sense of powerlessness in the church today, at least in this part of the country. There's such a sense of powerlessness. Why? Because we see ourselves as out there on our own trying to do it. And then we come to church and we see ourselves as a bunch of individuals trying to do this. And how are you doing today? And how are you doing today? As if we're all in a different race, all with a different assignment, and we come together to kind of encourage one another. We don't see ourselves as one either. Because he said, you all eat of the same bread. Now, we don't do it here but because it's just not practical. But it's, it's so much better when you can take a piece of bread and begin to break it off because what I ate is part of what you ate and part of what each of us ate. And Jesus said, this is my body which is broken for you. And that's how we look at it. And that's not what the Bible teaches because it says when you came to Christ, you were joined, joined to Him, made one with Him just as much is that piece of bread you ate yesterday is one with your body. Jesus says, my flesh is meat indeed. My blood is drink indeed. It's the true food. Why? Because it is a joining, it is a remembering, it is a joining together of, of him with me and me with him and us together with him. And so we come back to where we began when Paul says, you're coming together. 
And the purpose of this meal, the purpose of the sharing of the Lord's table together is to remind ourselves that Christ has literally come into me and just as that piece of bread and just as that grape juice will become part of my body, it's reminding me that Christ has become part of me and I've become part of Christ. And as I eat it with that attitude and I drink it with that attitude, I'm fellowshipping with him. I'm communing with him. I'm enjoying my relationship, my bond with him as we celebrate this together. And we're doing this not individually, but we're doing this together with him. And the reason Paul says we eat of it unworthily is because we do not rightly discern that it's the body of Christ we're celebrating that we are the body of Christ and that this represents his body. That bread will become part of you and eventually that little tiny piece will be burned off. And whatever, but he is eternally part of you and you are eternally part of him. And the church needs that revelation so that we can rest in that union. Paul says, you've been made You've been made, you've been made complete in him. You'll never be complete in yourself. I'll never be complete in myself, but I'm complete in him. I'm complete because I'm in him. Because I've been joined and made one with him. And Jesus' prayer is, Father, open their eyes that they would see that I am in them and they are in me, and we are in you, and you are in us, that we're one. And I'm learning. I'm not by any means there. I'm learning how to rest in that union. It's not that he's here somewhere. We're one. Just as I'm still learning how to rest in the union that I have with my wife. This is why God doesn't like the breaking of a covenant, because it's the breaking of a union. It's the breaking of a union. Let's pray. Father, your word tells us that as we come to this table, Father, for all of us, it's meant many different things. But help us to see what it means to you. Your word tells us that as we come to this table, that we're to examine ourselves. and to test the heart and attitude with which we come. Father, many of us, most of us, have taken this lightly or because of ignorance didn't understand what it was. Whatever it is, Lord, we stand in judgment on ourselves. We thank you that your word gives us the privilege of judging ourselves that we would not be condemned with the world. And so we judge ourselves in whatever way our attitude has been casual, We've been casual about Christ in our life. Whatever our attitude has taken it for granted, whatever it's been, Lord, we repent of it right now. And we ask you to make through your spirit what we're about to do so real to us. Thank you for the grace and mercy that you've given to us through Christ, that we can come to you and through Christ ask for forgiveness.